If you take your Bible, go ahead, get, get your Bible out, your phone or physical copy, I don't care. Uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And tonight we're back in the same chapter we were in last week. We started this series on, called God for Us. Before spring break, we were in God with us, and we were thinking through the seven I Am statements that Jesus made in John's Gospel. Um, you know, he... he, he a number of times just referred to himself as I am. Uh, for instance, in John eight fifty eight, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Or when uh, he, 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 he was being arrested. And they said, who are you? He said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. In your English Bible, it says, I am he. But in the Greek, it just says, I am. And they fell to the ground. That's significant because... That's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Who am I to say? If I go to Pharaoh and say, God told me to let, my, let his people go, who am I, who am I, what, what's your name? He said, I am who I am. So Jesus took that name for himself, showing that, that he, is, he is God in, who took on human flesh. We had seven different I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. So forth and so on. This this part of the semester, we're switching gears a little bit to God for us and thinking through the seven, the seven statements that Christ made as he was on the cross. If you piece together the four different gospel accounts, because they, they don't all tell it the exact same way. And that's kind of a grace gift to us. You know, uh, It actually lends itself, lends to the Bible's credibility that, think about it this way, it lends itself to the Bible's credibility that they're not told in exactly the same way. Think of it. Think if you were um, an, like a, a, a police officer, a detective, an investigator, and you were investigating something and you had four different witnesses, and they all came in and said, they said exactly the same thing. Wouldn't you think something was a little fishy? Like if they said verbatim all the same thing, they're like, they rehearsed that, right? That's not exactly what happened. But if you have four different accounts and they essentially tell the same story, but it's in a slightly different way or they highlight slightly different details, it, it lends itself to the credibility. So not all the crucifixion stories, I mean, Jesus obviously dies and rises again in all four of the Gospels, but they all emphasize different things that he said or whatever. But if you piece all of them together, you have seven different statements that he made while he was on the cross. And uh, traditionally, those seven statements have been called the seven words of the cross. And these are the last words before he died and last week we looked at the first one of those where he said father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing they know not what they do and we saw from that the righteousness of christ um in, in that he not only was he being obedient uh to the father by being a sacrifice for our sins to satisfy the demands of the law because of our sins but he was at the same time his very first words out of his mouth at the same time he was praying for the sinners for whom he was giving his life. Uh, and we, we, we also saw in that statement last week just how sinful we are, just how unique that prayer is. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's interesting because uh, he's not praying because they know exactly what they're doing, you know? And they're, they're, they're guilty, therefore forgive them, but precisely because they didn't know what they were doing. And we tend to think that if we just think of our day-in and day-out existence and our, I have kids and they think this way and we all still kind of think this way, 
we tend to think that ignorance means we're not guilty, you know? Like, um, you know, I'm not guilty because it wasn't on purpose. I didn't know, you know, that it, I'm not guilty because of that. But Scripture teaches the opposite. Scripture teaches that when it comes to our relationship with God, because He is our Creator, because He is Lord, because He is holy, and because He created us in His own image, that we are to live and walk before Him in perfect holiness, reflecting His perfect holiness. And every moment that we walk contrary to that, intentionally or unintentionally, we have failed to glorify Him in our lives and reflect His glory as He deserves. Or as Paul would put it to the Romans, we fall short of the glory of God. You know? But it's, it's precisely at that point, though, that in last week's Father forgive them for they know not what they do, we see His mercy. Uh, because in the same breath that he showed us how guilty we are, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but they still need your forgiveness. He still prayed for our forgiveness, and he was giving his very life for it. So tonight we're in the same chapter, Luke 23, and we're going to think about the second statement that he made uh, when uh, he told one of the thieves who was being crucified beside him, he told to the repentant thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is another great statement to think through. Uh, before we look at it more closely, though, let's, let's back up and, and again read a bit more of it for context. So just as we did last week, let's, let's begin back up to verse 26 and uh, read through our verse of verse 43. As they, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. You know, that's mocking. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, this is, a, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. It's perfect in every way. And uh, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is in these, in these words that we just read. And in all the scriptures that we turn to, give us minds to understand the truth. Break through any preconceived notions we may have. Help us to see and to think with clearness, clarity. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we just saw. Give us wills to obey whatever it calls us and leads us to do. Give me help that I do need to teach. Give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, by the way, they aren't the focal verses that we're going to think about tonight, but look again at just, just because I'd hate to leave this and not point out another significant part of this passage we just read. Look again at what Jesus says in verses 27 uh, through 30. It says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Uh, and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed, for they will begin to, then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. What in the world is he talking about? He's prophesying. He's prophesying. Um, he's prophesying. He's prophesying in those words right there what will happen at his second coming if, if, here's what you read like if you want to hold your place here and turn over to revelation chapter six here's what you read when you come to the, the book of revelation in chapter six um, when it talks about the the return of christ revelation six we begin reading in verse 12 it's not on the screen so just listen if you don't have a bible when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So you can see that's, that's what Jesus was saying. Right there in, in, in Luke 23, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Imagine that. That's what he's saying. That's not just what he's saying by the sea as he's teaching, is it? That's what he's saying as he struggled on the road to Golgotha. That's what he's saying as he's carrying his cross until physically he can't carry it anymore anymore. 
He's remind, and the people are there. It says they're there. Uh, the crowd, a great multitude, they're they're mourning and lamenting for him, and he and he's basically telling those people who are surrounding him, weeping. It's not always going to be like this, right? He he he, and he prophesied, pointing forward to this day in in Revelation six that at the sight of his coming. Rather than, rather than suffering beating and mistreatment, mistreatment and abuse from the authorities like was happening in, the, in, in Luke 23, the rulers are saying, save yourself. Soldiers, save yourself if you're the Christ. Rather than that, it says in this day, when he comes again, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, they're the ones calling on the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Man, how different his second coming will be from his first. It will be exactly as Jesus prophesied on the road to his death at his first coming. He knew that. He knew the end from the beginning, even in that moment of weakness and of, of, of suffering and of humiliation. But I want, before we leave Revelation, I want you to see something else here in Revelation before we go back to Luke. In light of this... Um, dreadful description of his second coming like you got to be pretty scared to want a mountain to fall on you it it ends with this statement in verse 17 for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand who is going that's the question it leaves you with who is going to be able to stand in that day is anybody going to be able to stand in that day, well, just you just keep reading. And in the very next chapter, you have this, this vision of a, of a great multitude of people. It tells it in two different ways. In the first few verses, it's this uh, vision of the 144,000. But that's restated a second time, beginning in, in a different way, beginning in verse 9. And look how it's stated in verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, from peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What are they doing? Did you catch it? What are they doing there before the, before the throne? They're standing. Multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, standing. Who can stand? For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These people can stand. Those who have put their hope and their trust in the Lamb, they're the ones who can stand in that day. They're not the ones who are trying to hide and fall on us as, and hide from God, as Adam did in the garden, still being played out in Revelation. But these are those who the Bible says elsewhere they have loved his appearing and cry out now how great his salvation is and how great it really is. But we're going to think about it for a minute tonight in this second saying of the cross, going back to Luke 23, that we just read from Luke 23. So if you haven't gone back there, you can now. So the story told us that when they crucified Jesus, they didn't crucify him by himself but crucified him between two other criminals. We're told in verse 39 that one of the criminals railed against him. 
One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him in unbelief. If you are the Christ, and he's the third one, the ruler said, save yourself. And the, the soldiers, save yourself. And then this guy is railed at him and says, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. I want you to notice that that's the same, that's the same temptation that Satan put before Jesus in the wilderness. If he would bow down and if you would bow down and serve me, I will give you all this, I'll give you all the glory. All the glory without a cross. All the glory without a cross. Take the glory without a cross. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die on a cross. If you're the Christ, save yourself. Then us. And so until the very last breath he took, he was having to put Satan behind him. Because to save himself, as they kept urging him three times, he would have to leave without salvation the sinners he came to save. That was the criminal on one side. But then the criminal on the other side spoke up. And here's what he said again in verses 40 through 42. The other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does that sound like to you? Uh, if you had to summarize what he just said, if somebody said, summarize what he just said in two words. I don't, you don't have to say it out loud, but just think what those two words might be. If you had to say, summarize what he just said said in two words here's how i would summarize it repentance and faith those are the two words i would pick repentance and faith where do you see those two things repentance we are justly being punished for our crimes and sins we are receiving the due reward for our deeds he's they're not ex, he's not excusing what he did He's not dying in defiance. He's dying in confession. Right? In his mind, he, and he knew, that, he knew that if he was dying guilty before man, then most certainly, without question, he would also die guilty before God. Which is why he precisely words his faith this way. Do you not fear God? That's faith. Because I fear God. That's the, that's the, that's the implied. Do you not, tell the other thief, do you not fear God? Implied, because I do. That's faith. And then, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, he sees who Jesus is. And so he not only confessed his sin and recognized it, he recognized Jesus for who he is and asked for mercy. Remember me. And that's when Jesus looks at him and says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is an amazing statement. And it, it says so much in, in, in a little bit. And uh, I just want to lay out just a few of those things that Jesus is teaching us. And we won't spend a long time, but enough time to think through it. And here's what I want to do about uh, with this verse. Uh, what I want to do is I want to, I want to take it, I'm gonna, it may feel like a detour at first, but maybe it'll prove helpful for you. 
I want to take this verse and answer, try to answer from it uh, two questions that you may have heard before, two questions that uh, sometimes come up, okay? And then, then we'll come back and think about the two main points of this verse. Here's one question that comes up. Again, it's going to feel like a detour, but I don't think it is. Um, that it's, it's a difference between um, Catholics and Protestants, okay? So when you're on, when you're on campus at, at Auburn, um, and you're having gospel conversations with, with people on campus, with friends. You probably know some Catholics, right? And there's a difference and with, between Catholics and, and lots of differences, but one of them has to do with the doctrine of purgatory. What about purgatory? What is purgatory? This is a doctrine of the Catholic Church that says that even those who have professed faith in Christ as their Savior... If they, as their catechism says, this is what their catechism says, if they die in, quote, die in God's grace and friendship, but are still imperfectly purified. They really said that. How can you, how can you die in God's grace and friendship and still be imperfectly purified? But they say you can. That, that shows right there an insufficient doctrine of the cross and the atonement. But they say that. But if, if that happens to you, then if that's you, you die imperfectly purified, purified a little bit, but not all the way, then you go to like a holding place or a, you're in a certain condition where before you go to heaven, after you die, but before you go to heaven, the rest of your sins are being, you're being purified for the, the remainder of your impurity. You're being purged from the rest of your sins. Purgatory. You're being purged. And it's only when that purging is finished that you go to heaven. But how does that square up with what Jesus says to this thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Now I'm going to say something else about paradise in just a minute that will show that it is the place where believers go when they die, but it's not purgatory. How do we see that here? How do we see that? How do we see in this an argument against the idea of purgatory? Because Jesus wasn't sending to this place called paradise. Jesus wasn't sending this criminal there alone, was he? No. Jesus said that that very day he would be there with him. The criminal would be in paradise with Jesus himself. Jesus had no sin of which to be purged. He wasn't imperfectly purified. Right? And what kind of consolation would that be anyway? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Sure thing. Yeah, I'll remember you when you show up in heaven about a thousand years from now, like after you've gone through purgatory. That's, that's quite a cold comfort. But purgatory is not a biblical doctrine. Jesus told the believing criminal that when he died he would be from that point on in the presence of christ today you will be with me in paradise we'll say more about that in just a minute but there's another question that comes up that might be addressed by this uh, can, this can help you think through and i've i've had this question posed to me a number of times what happened to jesus between friday and sunday after he died on the cross 
before his resurrection. Where was Jesus? You ever thought about that? I've had people ask me that, you know. Like more specifically, I've had it put this way. Did Jesus go to hell? Like as part of, as part of dying for our sins, did Jesus actually experience hell for us? Was he in hell between Friday and Sunday? Where does this idea come from? Like, what, you know? Well, there are probably a couple of scriptures that might be a little confusing to that point, but one source of this misunderstanding, I just gave away my answer, is uh, the historic Christian confession called the Apostles' Creed. Familiar with the Apostles' Creed? I like the Apostles' Creed. I confess it a lot. But here's what, here's what you confess in the, in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sits at the, at, the, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. A holy Catholic church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. That, that, that was historically confessed uh, in the early church before baptism. So before someone come to faith in Christ as giving their... You know how we, we, we do like the videos here, like some, we, we play their, your little testimony, you know, before you're baptized? Back in the day, they didn't have the videos. They'd get up, and as, as their testimony, they would say this Apostles' Creed, as saying, I believe the Orthodox Christian faith, I'm confessing that, baptism then. But you see right there in it, right in the middle of it, it confesses that when Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, that he descended into hell. Did they mean by that that Jesus suffered torment in literal hell as we understand it? No. What they meant by that is, is very much what Jesus is saying here in Luke 23, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, you say, well, that sure seems like a stretch. When it says he descended into hell, they really meant paradise, you know? Well, yes. Because even, even paradise in Luke 23, 43, even paradise here doesn't mean exactly what we think when we think paradise. I'll make that. I'll, we, we tend to think it's like beautiful places as paradise, right? It's like, go to the beach and beautiful sunset, I'm in paradise. That kind of thing. But in that day, they meant something very specific by paradise. It simply meant, and I hate to, like, rain on the parade, it simply meant the place of the dead. Like, that's what paradise was. The place where dead go. Um, but they understood, the, in, in, that, in that day, they understood it in two Ways. It's like two, two compartments to this place. Like in this big realm, the place of the dead, there were like two sides of it. There was the side that the godly went when they died, 
And there was the side that the ungodly went when they died. So paradise was the term of the place of the dead where the godly go when they die. The place where the righteous go when they die. By the way, just so you're not taking my word for it, that that's kind of the idea they had. You see, you see some of this idea in the parable of the rich man Lazarus. You see that kind of idea. So if you want to take, turn back to just a few chapters to Luke 16. And we'll begin reading in verse 19. <clears throat> That's a parable that Jesus told. There was a rich man, Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously, sumptuously, every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Abraham's, uh, Lazarus at, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none can pass from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is a parable, so we shouldn't press every detail of it, because it's trying to make a broader point that's not necessarily talk, what we're trying to say here. But you can see this idea of the place of the dead here in this. Like there's a, there's the, the rich man is, is in the unrighteous place and Lazarus is in the righteous place. There's a chasm between the two. They, they know that they're there, but you can't pass from one to the other. Right? So you go back to Luke 23, and you can see how when Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And even when the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell, it simply means that Jesus descended to the place of the dead. His body was buried in a tomb. His soul went to the place of the dead where the godly go. He was Lazarus and Abraham. What was he doing there? He was proclaiming his victory. Like that started the victory lap. Right? He, he, his victory was about to be shown to everybody through his resurrection and ascension. But his victory started in that place, in his dissension, right? Um, and, 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 and he did, so he didn't suffer in hell. He went to all the godly who had already died, all the righteous who had already died, and proclaimed his victory over death. And also his victory over all those who had rebelled against him all their lives. That's the place, the place where the righteous go, the gathering of the righteous who have already died. That's the place where everyone will go until Christ comes again and brings with him a new heavens and a new earth where we'll be resurrected to our 
resurrection bodies. Now, somebody might say, that does not sound very poetic, right? Today, you will be with me in the righteous compartment of the dead. Um, well, on the one hand, I agree with you. But on the other hand, that misses the point. Because here's the first of the two main truths of this passage. The first of the main truths has to do with the glory of heaven. Because very often when we come to this verse or this saying, today you will be with me in paradise. If we were asked what word in that verse describes the glory of heaven, most people would say paradise. You know, you'll be with me in paradise. That's the climactic word of the verse. To most hearers today, wouldn't even think. What's the, what word in that verse talks, describes the glory of heaven? Well, paradise, of course. And it is a glorious place. And it'll be beautiful. But that's not the answer to the question. The glory of heaven is found in this verse in the words, with me. With me. Those are the words Jesus is drawing that, that criminal's mind to. Even how it's worded in Greek shows that. In, in the Greek of that day, the, a lot of, very often, it didn't, it didn't matter as much then what order the words were in in their sentence. So often they would put the words they wanted to emphasize most at the beginning of the sentence. And so literally, in, in, in the Greek of this verse, it, it literally translates, Today, with me, you will be in paradise. With me. That, that man had simply asked to be remembered. And Jesus answered him even better. I don't have to remember. You're going to be with me. You'll be with me. That's the glory of heaven. It's not the streets. It's not the structures. I, I used to pastor a little country church. And uh, a bunch of old people and... Their favorite hymn was like, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. It's not that. Man, mansions. Come on, man. Um, no, it's not the streets or the structures. It's, 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 it's the fact that we're in the presence of our triune God. We'll be in a place that has no need of a sun because the glory of God will be its light. And did not Jesus say in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also? That's the point. That's the point. In the garden, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day when He sinned, Adam hid. On the other end of the Scriptures, when He comes again, most hide, but for those who are His, He walks with them in the cool of the day. You see what I'm saying? His presence is the peace of that place. The glory of Christ glimpsed at the transfiguration will be the forever glory of that place. That leaves us with just one final thought that I just want to say for two seconds. How do we become sure that these things will be true of us? Because that's the other point of this, this one verse. How do we become 
certain that this, what he said to this criminal will be true of us. Faith alone. What did this criminal do to earn the favor of Christ? Nothing. What good deed could he do on a cross? Nothing. How did he come to receive these precious promises from Jesus? Faith alone. Repentance and faith alone. Lord, remember me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's by faith alone, not by any good works that we can do, that still to this very day, it's the way that we receive these precious promises for Christ. You know, uh, if, you're, if you're here and you've never, you don't know that you have a relationship with Christ, the way that you have a relationship with Christ is just repentance of your sins and faith in Him. I trust what you did for me, not what I can do for you. For the rest of us who do have a relationship with Christ, we have, a, we have an age-old tendency to think we get in by faith and stay in some other way. And Paul said in Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obvious answer, by hearing with faith. Then are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, we don't just come to Christ the first time by faith alone. We walk every day by faith alone. By faith alone, you are as righteous today as you will ever be righteous or ever need to be righteous. Because by faith alone, your righteousness is not yours. It's Jesus's given to you. And his righteousness never improves. It's already perfect. So take joy in that. Let's pray.